Hello listeners, welcome to Explore FI Canada, where we sit at the round table with Canadians and share their thoughts, ideas and personal journeys to financial independence. Hello again, listeners. Welcome back to Explore FI Canada. Money Mechanic is with you on the show today. And my co-host Chrissy is out here on the West Coast as well. Hello, Chrissy. Hello, Money Mechanic. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. It's, uh, it's another lovely day. The dogs will soon be bugging me to get outside. So, you know, they've gotten used to their lunchtime walks. Have you been doing that with your dogs around the neighborhood there? Yep, for sure. We we have our lunch and then we take her out for an hour, uh, me and the boys. And sometimes my husband comes along as well if he's not too busy with work. Nice. So before we get into our show today, we've got a, a very interesting guest on the show. So I, I'm sure our listeners are going to uh, get lots of value from what he has to say. Uh, before we get into that, though, um, we're just making a little uh, public service announcement and uh, saying our farewell to Ryan, who's been a co-host from the beginning on the show. And uh, he brought lots of great content to the show and he produced some great online meetups. And yeah, so we just wanted all our listeners to know that he has moved on from the show, but we will continue pursuing the roundtable discussions in Canada. Chrissy? Yes, we're sad to announce that Ryan has decided to leave. He is hoping to spend more time with his daughter, who is still very young. So uh, we wish him all the best. And I'm really happy for him to be able to have more time to spend with her and his, his wife and perhaps more little Ryans down the road. <laughs> <laughs> more little Ryans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we wish him all the best. Yeah, for sure. And, and of course, the listeners can always catch up with Ryan's writing over on his blog, CanadianFire.ca. I know he'll be still producing some content over there. So check that out. And uh, hopefully, in due course, we'll have Ryan back on for an update on how his fire journey is going. Yeah, I look forward to that. I hope we can convince him to come back on the air. <laughs> <He's> not, <laughs> not too, uh, he won't be too busy to come and talk to us again. For sure. All right. Well, with that out of the way, without further ado, uh, we'd like to introduce our guest today. It is Ed Rempel, and he is a financial advisor, not just any financial advisor. He is your financial advisor, Chrissy. Yes, he is. And I have spoken about Ed many times, so we're excited to finally bring him on the show. Yeah. Welcome to the show, Ed. Nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. Yes. And we, we've we been wanting to bring you on for quite a while because uh, all of our listeners know I've, I've spoken about you many times. You are our financial planner and you've given us a lot of great advice uh, over the years and we've been very happy working with you. So I'd love to give our listeners this opportunity to uh, learn more from you and uh, hear what you have to say, uh, particularly in this um, environment that we're in right now. We, we'd love to get your feedback on all kinds of things, including one of the topics that we're going to talk about today, which is long-term thinking and uh, bonds. Yes, thanks. You're, uh, you're a pleasure to work with as well, Chrissy. <laughs> so, Ed, go ahead and give us uh, just a little short pitch for our listeners so that they, if they haven't read your blog yet and maybe haven't listened to all the praise that uh, Chrissy puts out for you, um, just fill us in. <laughs> just a little background. All right. So I'm a, uh, I guess I'm a fee-for-service financial planner and a blogger. I really, and I really enjoy blogging. Um, I think the difference in my case is, is, uh, is just experience. I've been around for 25 years of nearly a thousand financial plans. And by doing that, I've just gained a whole level of insight, which is what I actually love writing about uh, in my blog. And it's given me an, what I call an unconventional wisdom. I think much of what most people you know, know about finances, the, all the conventional wisdom is either not optimal or often doesn't even work. 
but I've learned over the years, you know, what, what actually what actually works in finance. And that's all the things that I love to write about in my blog. And yeah, so I have, a, I have a practice that's focused on financial planning, where we start out by writing a comprehensive plan. And um, I, I think most people don't actually realize the the uh, the importance of it. But when you have a plan, it's it's much more valuable than you think. Actually, uh, gets you thinking the right way. You know exactly what strategies to use and what to focus on and where you're going long term. And uh, it makes a big difference in in what you do and in how you invest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that leads us into uh, today's conversation. Um, you sent us a, some information uh, about how to easily outperform investment advisors and robo-advisors. And I think it's a good time to talk about this topic right now because if people had engaged in long-term thinking with their financial planning, this would just be a blip in their investment journey and uh, there would be no need to panic at this point. So can you go into that a little bit, how how you think people can easily outperform investment advisors and robo-advisors? Okay, so I think the bottom line is is, is by thinking long-term, we're always, I mean, we're thinking about what kind of investment will outperform long-term. So I find for investment advisors and robo-advisors, they tend to, they tend to, to think short-term for fewer reasons. So one is that, you know, for example, they don't have the, the in-depth relationship that we have with clients. So all they have is the investments. So they're always worried about losing clients, you know, if the market goes down. So when you talk to investment advisors, they're always talking about getting a reasonable return with less risk. And with less risk is code for investing in bonds. So they tend to always have, they always tend to have, you know, typically they'd have a 60-40 portfolio or 40% of your money's in bonds. And most of them, even robo-advisors, will rarely do anything with less than 20% in bonds. And, you know, bonds were historically good when interest rates were much higher. But from today, you know, you're getting a 1% or 2% yield for the next 30 years. And uh, I guess the way I tend to put it is with, with bonds is, you know, heads you make nothing and tails you lose money. So with bonds, the optimistic view is that rates stay where they are and you make 1% or 2% a year for the next 30 years, which may not even keep up with inflation. And if rates rise, then you actually lose money. So you think, why would somebody buy such a crappy investment at this point in time? And it's, I, it's just, you know, the conventional wisdom, you should have some bonds and you're, and you're trying to reduce risk. But, but, you know, the investment advisor, they are always focused on reducing risk. And if you look at the, the time we're having right now, you know, during this pandemic, a lot of people are panicked. Oh, my God, should I sell when it's gone down? And, you know, the first week you saw lots of panic selling. I'm thinking, who is selling, you know, because it's if you think long-term, it just changes what you do. So uh, 25 years from now, the market's going to be four to eight times higher than it is today. And so the market is down 20 or 30%. You're getting in 20, 30% cheaper. It's going to be way up down the road. That's all you need to know, right? And have some good investments. But the short-term thinkers are panicked thinking about, oh, where's the bottom of the market? Is it, you know, when do you get in and and all this market timing stuff? And of course, when, when you're focused on that, they end up owning a bunch of bonds and sitting in cash and, and they just they just missed a whole lot of the return. Yeah, you wrote about that in your most recent article here where you're talking about this COVID-19 problem that we've been having going on for a little while here. And you mentioned that to be, you know, you want to be fully invested through the entire bull markets, right? And that gives you the long-term growth of the stock market. 
And the bear markets, these are the buying opportunities to buy more at lower prices. And I see a lot, so many comments out there of, is this the bottom? Um, should I buy in now? Should I hold cash? Should I dollar cost average? And these are kind of all, they become investor psychology questions more than they become actual financial decisions. And I like the way you wrote about some of those things in this, the time horizon and that of your most recent article there. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, you know, short term, I have no idea what's going to happen. I don't think anybody does. We're just kind of all guessing. Um, but we know what we know what it'll do long term. In fact, it's funny, all the people trying to guess where the bottom is. Most likely the bottom was three weeks ago. It's I find it's when you're the people trying to think short term, believe it or not, they usually miss the bottom, not by days, but usually by by months or years. And it's interesting how when you miss the bottom, you've you've waited until the market stabilized and is climbing up again, but you've missed the days of the biggest gains in the market. It's historically proven that that's what happens to a lot of people. Yeah, the the biggest gains are usually right after the biggest losses, like the next day. Wow! Right, and the the biggest months up months are uh, you know right after the biggest biggest down months. You know, so the biggest bull market in history actually was. 1933 to 36, the market went up like 400% in, th- in four years, but it's because it was right after the biggest down period. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. So getting back to this, this, um, this statement that you made that you can easily outperform, and I like that you've used italics in there for easily, and you sent us a, a graphic overlaying a total return index with a popular, everybody listening probably understands or knows what the Canadian couch potato portfolio looks like. You also included a dividend index in there. And it was undeniable that the returns of the total return were a lot larger. And I agree with what you've already discussed today about having that bond component or using a larger bond component for some of the robos and advisors definitely adds a drag to those portfolios. But also one of the things when I looked into it was that it talks, uh, you have to look at your global allocation. Do you want to comment on that as how we as Canadians maybe have too much home bias that uh, affects our total return over time? Yeah, I think it's it's surprising the, th- the things that actually make a difference. So yeah, I, comp- I compared the couch potato, you know, the most aggressive of their five. I took dividend investing. Basically, I took the most popular dividend investing ETF in Canada. And I took a robo-advisor, and I, again, I took their more most aggressive portfolio, and I compared it to what I call total return in- investing, which is just the MSAI World Index. So just just getting the full index return. And of course, the index was you know four four five four to six percent per year higher than any of the other methods. And I, I, I read a lot on you know on a lot of blogs, and I, there's always I think the two most popular styles recently have been in dividend investing and index investing. Which one is better? And they have all these theoretical things, but the actual difference is usually n- nothing to do with that. It's 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 exposure to the two the two biggest drags in the last decade have have been uh, uh, bonds and and being in Canada. So Canada's you know bonds of course paying. Even interest rates came down a little bit the last decades, but so bonds did okay the last uh, decade, but probably better than they're going to do going forward. And Canada had a noticeably bad <laughs> decade, but you you would expect those two to lag all the time anyway. So, for example, you heard dividend investing to index. The biggest factor is dividend investing tends to win because it tends to be 100% equities, while indexers 
So you don't typically put, you know, 25% Canada, 25% U.S., 25% international, 25% in bonds. Now you got 25% in bonds, and that's the really reason you're lagging. So, but the issue with with dividend investors is often they try to have, uh, you know, Canadian companies, especially if it's non-registered because of the lower tax. But anyway, they're picking companies one by one. They want to pick familiar companies in Canada here. So you end up with so much in Canada that it that it tends to lag. So Canada actually lagged the global stock market by 6.3% a year in the last the last 10 years. That is shocking. And I did not realize that drag until you sent us this chart. It's from Morningstar, I believe. It, yeah. And it shows how the Canadian couch potato portfolio, the aggressive one, which is 90% equities, 10% bonds, it's the, the dead last <laughs> performed the worst. Yeah, that was 80-20. Yes. Oh, is it 80-20? Okay. Yes. And yeah, it's got, it's got some in Canada, but most of it is just, most of it is, is the bond allocation that's dragging it way down. And I think this discussion is going to be very interesting to our listeners because there's been so much talk and use of all the Vanguard all-in-ones. Everybody's into their, their V-Bal or the V-Grow or, or whatever it is at this point. And after doing some prep for this interview and reading through what you sent, I, I had to have a look at my own portfolio and went, why am I holding, why am I holding V-Grow? and VQT and you know I should be changing that getting rid of some of my Canadian allocation and the bond allocation and maybe choosing XAW and we don't have to go down a discussion here about what investments anybody should hold that's not the purpose of our show but it made me think about how much Canadian exposure I have and what would be appropriate within my portfolio so I think it's definitely something that hopefully our listeners can take away from this conversation and maybe just have a look at that and it's a personal decision, of course, or maybe you and your investment planner's decision is how much Canadian exposure is appropriate. And I've looked and I'm definitely far too high when I look at the total return index. And I thought that strategy of the total return investing, trying to capture that global, uh, an appropriate global proportion is something that I've definitely not focused on enough. So I appreciate at least doing this interview so that it's opened my eyes up a little bit. And I take it when you do your long-term planning, that's how you work together with your clients to figure out these, these portfolios. Yeah. Yeah. We don't, we we try to avoid picking, you know, sectors or countries. We just want to get the the global growth. And, uh, but you know, if you you invest globally, Canada is only 3% of the world stock market. So anything over 3% is an overweight position. And, you know, in my opinion, so TSX 60 is, you know, 75% in three sectors and almost all of the other sectors is only like one or 2% in it. So to me is the TSX 60 should not be a core holding for anybody. It's a financial services and resource sector fund, right? Mm-hmm. So, and it's, and you'd expect that it's going to have a lot, it's going to have a lower return than, than the, the blood uh, the global index most of the time, except when oil is doing well. You know, when when oil goes up a lot, then of course Canada has a, has a few good years, and but otherwise it, it tends to lag. So, but there's a you know traditional thinking that oh we're in Canada, so somehow we're safer. And you know every country in the world has this home bias. They tend to have eighty percent of their money in their own their own country. And I actually the, a funny story was about ten years ago there was a financial collapse in Iceland the stock market collapse. And um, we found out that uh, 80% of the money invested by people in Iceland was in Iceland stocks. And my first thought was, 
there are Iceland stocks. I can't, <laughs> I can't even name one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What do they put their money in? And but it's like every every country that they do it. And to me, it's it's just as illogical in in any country to put you know eighty percent of your own money in your own country. How would you talk to someone to help them overcome this home country bias? Because it's so ingrained in us to have at least a, a third, if not more, in Canada. How how can someone overcome that bias? Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes you, you some things you have to do logically and not emotionally because there's a if you go with your gut there's a feeling that oh you know our our local bank i know it that's safer than you know a similar bank in the states or in australia but why would it be they're all kind of you know banks are most mostly the similar other banks and a lot of other banks grow faster than ours you know mm-hmm. so but a lot, a lot of i think it's the uh there's a there's a gut feeling that familiarity makes it safer, but if you just show people that's you know the difference that you get from much longer term you know from much broader investing, mm-hmm. you know incidentally in Canada if you take the TSX sixty and take the average size of the com- company, it's smaller than the average company in the emerging markets index. <laughs> wow! So wow. we are a you know we're, we're a mid size resource focused index. It's, you know, it's not something you, I think, if you look at it that way, you know, if if somebody told you here in Canada that they have 80% of their money in Australia, you'd think, why would you do that? That sounds dumb, right? <laughs> yeah. But Australia is actually a lot like Canada. Like it's similar mm-hmm. size and mostly banks and, and resources. And it's, you know, it's a similar kind of thing. I think you have to use, in short answer, Chris, I think you have to think logically about it. There's some things that you can't, the human gut is really built for investing. Well, I like the way you explained it. And as far as getting it to a more actionable level, should Canadians take it to the extreme of having only 3% Canadian because that's what is reflected in the world economy? Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying what anybody else should do. Different people mm-hmm. are in different situations. But I'm just giving an example of, you know, the conventional wisdom and how people tend to do it a certain way mm-hmm. and what actually is it's an example of what actually works. If you just invest 100% in global equity and forget about, you know, f- focusing on looking for a dividend income or, or focus on, you know, traditional three or four sectors or having L in Canada, I don't know, you just get a more accurate way of a more broad way of thinking. And that's why it's kind of, that's why I say it's easy, it's easy to perform most, uh, most investment advisors and even all the robo advisors. Mm-hmm. And I guess this is why in our you know, in the financial independence of the fire community, we've heard so much discussion coming from the the brain trust in the US where they just talk about investing in VTI, which is the total market index, just invest in the whole world, just put everything there and and then kind of hands off and don't play with things. Yeah, a lot of sense there. Yeah, totally. So going back to um, sort of where we're going here with, we've talked about and I think it's interesting and people need to understand how they measure their returns because they need to understand that their Canadian bias is going to have an impact on their overall portfolio returns. And also that bond component is going to have an overall impact on their returns. So just something that I got from reading through what you sent us was understanding that I'm measuring my returns 
again, something of, of a similar portfolio structure instead of looking and going, oh, why am I underperforming the global index? And it's, it's about understanding why you are underperforming, what you're expecting your results to be. So I think that's interesting when your statement holds true is you can easily outperform traditional models because when you start breaking it down into these chunks, that's where it starts, you start to see the, uh, the underperformance. Uh, exactly, yes. Okay, good. I'm glad I got that right. <laughs> let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about, you mentioned earlier about risk. And I like where you put risk in quotes because so many of us think of risk as the traditional, like you said, it's a short-term risk. My money is risky in the stock market, but because I'm an owner of a business that, and I hopefully, or that business has long-term expectations of profits, that's not actually my risk, Right. You talk about it's your if your plan is long term, the bigger risk is not meeting your investment objectives over the long term. Yes, exactly. So for your investment advisors, risk is, you know, the risk is that, oh, the market might decline this year or, the, or next month or something. That's the risk. And it's all short term thinking. Right. But, you know, so if you have so this is a part of how a financial plan helps you. So you make a financial plan that you're going to retire in 20 years and live for another 30 years after that. And in the plan, you have an average, let's say, 7% or 8% rate of return built into your plan. Then risk, risk is that your, you know, your 50-year return is less than 8% or 7% a year. So, And interesting is when you think of it that way, then adding bonds actually makes your portfolio more risky. Because the more bonds you have, the less likely you're going to get that 7% or 8% long-term return, right? So, But for most investment advisors, they think bonds make it safer because it reduces the short-term volatility. But it's, it's I think, as a financial planner, by thinking long-term, we just have a completely different and more effective definition of risk. And that's what helps us, helps us to, uh, you know, to get a much better return for our clients. I was really interested to see how you related having a bond component as as actually you could almost look at it as an additional management extent expense ratio added onto your portfolio because you're going you're sacrificing some of the potential gains from an all equity portfolio so it, it just came and made me look at it from a different perspective i'd never thought of before that i'm actually sacrificing uh, potential gains and that's actually like adding a cost to my portfolio by having 25 percent bonds that was something interesting i hadn't thought of before yeah, it's funny that people will, you know, they'll 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 dump a high fee fund, but then they'll they'll go to on a robo advisor or, or a traditional portfolio, and they have twenty five percent in bonds, and so that twenty five percent in bonds, we we'd expect it to reduce your long term return by somewhere between one and a half and two and a half percent a year. That's so it's probably is you know all the money you saved from a lower fee is lost because you have twenty five percent in bonds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you even mention a, a quote from Warren Buffett where he says bonds today are return free risk. <laughs> <So> <laughs> if things go well, you get 2% per year for 30 years or zero after inflation, which I think is something that you mentioned in your article about bonds is that people ignore inflation. They forget about that. And that is a component which makes bonds very, uh, not a, a sensible choice in a long-term portfolio. Yeah. Interestingly is, you know, Bonds have had many year periods of time where they lost money. When I'm talking about money, I'm talking about purchasing power. So, for example, if the last time interest rates were this low was like around 1950. And if you had enough money to buy two cars and you put it into a 30-year government bond and waited the full 30 years, got all your interest, at the end of that period, you could only buy one car. 
So you lost 50% of your purchasing power after 30 years. Wow. And bonds do that sometimes when you have a period of you know, rising rates plus high inflation, they tend not to keep up. So, however, stocks have actually never had that issue. Stocks, you take any 30-year period, stocks have always had a, a, a good rate of return, even after inflation. So, um, yeah, what's the worst, the worst, you know, I think people tend to over, uh, because they think short-term, they think stocks are much riskier than they are, because, I mean, stocks are risky short-term, no question, and even medium-term. But I think what people miss is long-term stocks are actually actually much more consistent. So, you know, the the lowest, uh, the worst 25-year period, calendar period for this, the S&P 500, the last 90 years, was 7.9% a year, 8, 8% a year. That's the worst 25-year period. That's fascinating. So it's actually, you know, so you, you people worried about the ups and downs, but, you know, it's, if you're in for a long term, it's surprising how consistent that is. Mm-hmm. So since we're on the topic of bonds, I'd like to get your opinion on something. Uh, with the recent crash that we had, it was quite big. Some people would say that their their bonds would have co- helped cushion that if, for instance, they were retiring uh, or they recently, re- recently retired or were planning to retire very soon, that if they had a bond cushion, that would have helped with that. What is your response to that? If someone had instead been 100% equities, they would have seen a bigger drop. But what is your response to someone who said, if I had more bonds, it would have helped? Well, short term, it would have helped. Mm-hmm. Except, I don't know, corporate bonds actually got nailed a lot too. But but generally, if you, if you have government bonds and the market falls by 30%, your your bonds will, will cushion it, will cushion the fall. But you probably would have had lower lower returns to start with, and maybe you wouldn't have reached your goal at, in the amount of time that you wanted. Yes, because I, I think I see it's, it's different, Christy, when you look at it when you look at it long term, mm-hmm. because you know if you're just retiring, you've got probably 30 years in front of you. The average Canadian couple, if you take whichever one lives the longest, lives 32 years in retirement. So it's a long it's a long term thing. So I have a I have a study that I did on my blog about the four percent rule. So so this is, you know, if you're retired, the question is how much money can you reliably take out of your out of your portfolio and not run out of money? So four percent rule says, you know, if you have a million dollars, you can take four percent of it out, that's forty thousand a year, and increase it by inflation, and it should last as long as you do. So I studied it with the actual numbers of stocks and bonds of and inflation over the last 150 years. And what I found is the 4% rule works 97% of the time if you have between 70 and 100% in equities. But the more you have in bonds, the more often you run out of money because bonds actually had significant periods of time where they, where they lost money after inflation, but, but stocks didn't. So it's, you know, the, it's a difference when you're looking short term versus long term. Even if you're just retiring today and you're, you know, 60 or 65, and but you're investing for the next 30 years, bond uh, stocks are still a safer long term investment. That's it's such an interesting concept for people to wrap their head around. And I've got a question that's along. I mean, we're still along the same lines here, but the view that. If you had, I'm just going to use just grabbing numbers out of the air here. If you had a 30% bond allocation in your portfolio, 70% stocks, my the traditional thinking in my head is that when we see a market crash, your your portfolio percentages now change due to the value of each of those assets. So the idea is to use that 
available cash that's in the bond side now to purchase equities at the lowest price. And conversely, when we see market highs where equities are really high, we're moving some of that money out. So effectively, we're buying or sorry, we're <laughs> selling high and buying low. And in a bit of my head is like, okay, well, if we eliminate bonds from our portfolio and go 100% equities, do we obviously we don't rebalance anymore, we just continue to purchase equities the whole time. But in my mind, we lose that opportunity of taking a larger lump sum and buying at lows or selling at highs. Is is that kind of that logic not apply when you just decide to go 100% equities and dollar cost average for a long-term plan? Can you speak to that a little bit, Ed? Well, I mean, you, you, you could do it somewhat. Even if you're 100% in stocks, you can, you know, when the market is low, you can just invest a bit extra, do your RSP contribution early. Uh, you could even buy, switch over to some more aggressive stocks while the market's down. There are ways to do it with, with just stocks as well. Right. If you've got extra cash that you can deploy at that time, for sure. Right. Yeah. Or you, you, you know, do investment ahead of time for what you would have done later on. But, but you know, uh, money mechanic, I think a bigger factor is, yes, there is a bit of, there is a bit of gain by buying more low. But there's a, a bigger factor is just the, the drag of having, you know, 30% in bonds over the next 30 years. So that 30% is going to make hardly anything. So the other 70% has to make all the uh, make all the return. So I'm a guy that likes to study everything. And I, I guess one, one example of that is, is the cash uh, cushion. So a lot of people think when they retire, they should keep two years worth of investments in cash. So the idea is whenever the markets go down, then they're going to stop withdrawing from their equities and they're just going to live off the cash until the equities bounce back, right? So it's a way to, to avoid having to, ca- to sell stocks when you're down. So there's a perception that it should actually stop you from running out of money. So, of course, I'm a math guy, so I went and tested it. The last 150 years, if you had, you know, zero, ca- zero cash or one-year cash or two-year, three-year, I went to how many years cash has the, the least chance of running out of money, and the li- lowest chance of running out of money was zero cash. Hmm. So there was once you got to 2% cash or, or more, like with 1% cash, it worked out basically the same. But interestingly, it was, there never was a case where you would have run out of money being 100% in stocks, but having some in cash wouldn't have made you also run out of money over a 30-year period. But there were times where holding the extra cash was a drag on your return and you ended up running out of money you know, before the 30 years was, was over. All right. Well, I found it really interesting that we've touched on some subjects that a lot of us, uh, especially the do-it-yourself investors, maybe we just don't dig deep enough into these topics. And it's excellent speaking with someone like yourself, Ed, that does do the math and dig into the research on these. And I do love that your blog is Unconventional Wisdom because too many of us are trapped in these traditional ways of thinking. And I think we've shown today in the episode that bonds may or may not play a part in your portfolio. And if they do, then you need to understand why they're there and what your expected returns are on them and also our global allocations and, and things like that. So one of the things that I think we're guilty of, and I know I'm guilty of it, and Chrissy, you're not, which is awesome, but many of us in the uh, FI or Firespace are sort of avid DIY investors, and we, we read a lot and we educate ourselves. But speaking with you just today and in general reading some of your stuff, I think there's a lot of value to be had for uh, working with 
a planner such as yourself. And one of the lines that I, I caught a couple of times, you say that you try and pay for yourself. And uh, just maybe speak to the DIY people out there, even just like myself, of, of what value you can bring to a, a long-term way of thinking. Yeah, I, I usually try to pay, pay for myself entirely by recommending a top portfolio manager that should be able to do as well after fees as you would otherwise. Or, or let's say what, what we're trying to do is match or beat the index after all fees, including mine. So in that case, all of the financial planning advice is truly value added. Because if not, you know, even if you get a lot of value advice from a financial planner, but but if if you're not sure if if you if you think you may have got a lower return than you got otherwise, then you're never quite sure how to how to compare that. Are you really better off? But um, I think what most people don't realize, especially maybe do-it-yourselfers, is the plan has a much bigger effect than you think. It changes your thinking the long term, and very often it changes what you do. So, for example, a lot of people debate should you use RSP or TFSA. Well, so we look at uh, you know I'm a tax guy, so we look at what's your the biggest factor is what's your marginal tax bracket today, and what's it going to be after you retire. Now, if we've done a financial plan, we actually know those numbers, so we know clearly which one of those is better and exactly how to do it. And you know, we we try to make a plan to you know use up your RSP room over your over your career. And um, another big factor is when you think long term, uh, you often do different strategies than you would otherwise. Like we we ha- we've had a fair number of people that that do leverage as a strategy. You know, borrowing to invest is a risky strategy, but can be very effective for the right people who will stick to it long term and can ride through the ups and downs. You know, you borrow at a low rate and it's all tax deductible and you invest in equities for the long term. It can work really well and it's surprising how well it can work in a financial plan. But again, if you're thinking short term, you think, oh, my God, it's risky. And and yeah, so it's it's not something you should do as a short term thing. It's it's you do it long term. So I find when you're when you have a financial plan, you know exactly how much you have to save for your future. You know, I have to save whatever is 1000 or 1500 a month, I need to make 8% a year and I have to do this strategy. And so you know exactly what you have to do to get to uh, have the, the future that you want. And th- that alone makes it valuable. Then when we get to the investing side, it's the same thing. It makes you think long-term about what's the investment that's going to give me 8% a year over the next 20 years. And I'm not worried about, you know, so it doesn't matter if it goes up and down this year, if there's a market crash, you know, it, there'll be a market crash every year. Uh, or a downturn every two or three times a decade or whatever it is. And whenever they are, they're just buying opportunities, but we're just in here for a, for the next 20, 30 or more years. And we're, and our goal is, we, you know, is, is based on our life is to make that long-term rate of return. So, you know, a good analogy is if you ever tried driving where you're looking immediately in front of the car. So, you know, if you look right in front of the car, and try driving that way. What you find is you keep weaving back and forth, and you're actually much more likely to to not see something coming down the road and hit something. So when you drive, you're looking ways down, you're quite a ways down closer to the horizon. And why do you do that? Because you find you just drive much more effectively that way. And it's and it's the same thing when it comes to your personal finances, your planning, and also your investing. And being your client, as my in-laws also have their own financial planner, I can speak to how important the advice aspect of it is and also how stabilizing it can be to have a professional who knows what they're doing, who can keep guiding you long-term. It 
it just gives you that bit of confidence, that peace of mind so that you can stay with your long-term plan and you don't panic because you know this person has learned and studied and done the research to know how to guide you along this path. And if they're telling you something, you know you can trust them and then you yourself can sleep well at night because you don't have to think about it. You know that someone's helped you and they've told you most financial planners, I think, would try to help educate their clients into why their plan is a certain way and why they're taking a certain approach. That, to me, is so important to have that that knowledge and to have that confidence backing you. And that's how I can stay the course, even though the markets are rocky right now. It it hasn't phased me one bit. Yeah, it's interesting because sometimes just one little factor actually pays for everything. Like, I give you an example. If you're someone's a do-it-yourself investor. And in this time, you know, this this panic, you actually sold, then I would suggest to you that it's worth having an advisor because <laughs> if you panic and sell once and take a 30% loss, you know, if you had an advisor, they would have encouraged you to stay invested. And that's 30%. So that's the 1% a year over the next 30 years. You just the <laughs> advisor pays for 30 years worth of advice just by keeping you invested once, you know. We call that the big mistake. If you, the biggest mistake in investing is to sell or invest more conservatively after a market decline. And it's also probably the single most common mistake. Definitely agree with that. Chrissy, our co-host Ryan had sent us a couple of questions, and I actually think we've covered them fairly well in this discussion with Ed. Do you feel that we need to specifically focus on any of those ones that he had here? Uh. One that's kind of interesting is the question about simplicity. Sure, yeah. Um, and a, a big reason why a lot of people, especially in the FI community, uh, they choose robo-advisors. Um, they're a relatively cheap option compared to if you were to work with a full-service planner. But the biggest reason why people choose robo-advisors, I think, is for the simplicity. So how would you address someone like that who says, I just want simplicity and it's easy to dump money into a robo-advisor? Is it worth it to trade off um, possible returns for that simplicity? Well, if you want simplicity, you could also work with an advisor who can just kind of do everything for you. That's you know? true. And you can invest directly from your bank just, just with, a, with an advisor, just like you do with a robo-advisor. So, you know, the interesting thing is, for my long-term clients, I charge 1% a year and, you know, less if you get to larger accounts. And most robo-advisors charge half a percent. And there's a perception that I'm expensive and a robo-advisor is cheap. Mm-hmm. But I've given all this advice for 1% and the robo-advisor has really all they've given you is a, is a platform to enter things. There's really no advice. And, and, their, and their fee is half of my fee. Yeah. So it's it's basically you're getting a portfolio that's rebalanced and you don't get any advice and you don't get a, a plan with that typically. Yeah, but consequent but they also have like even the most you go to a robo advisor and ask for a hundred percent equity portfolio and they'll always fight you. They want you to have at least twenty percent bonds. Well, if you're paying a half percent of fee plus you have twenty percent in bonds, you're gonna underperform my clients. Mm-hmm. Right. And that just to be clear for the listeners, is that you Obviously, from our discussion today, but uh, from other literature we read, is that you advocate for 100% equities portfolio. In case, in case anybody uh, listening was wondering, it's. <laughs> well, okay, let me make that clear. I'm not saying everybody should do that. No, but I'm saying that's the the model that you've been working with. Yeah. That I idea. Just that when you think long term and you get educated that the market does does you know stocks do well long term, it's the asset class with the highest rate of return. You still have to have the risk tolerance to be able to stick with it. 
Because if whatever you do, if the first time it, it goes down, you anytime if, if it, you panic and sell when it goes down, then what you had was too risky for you. Right. You know, it, that's, still, that's still the case. But when you think long term, I find very often people can take a much higher allocation. And a lot of our clients have uh, 100% equities and they can tolerate it because they've got that long term vision. Well, I'm going to um, I'm going to suggest to all the listeners that are here today to read your article about bonds because that was an eye opener for me. And for people that are thinking that they're just a safe way to store money and you'll get a, a constant interest payment, it is so important to realize that that's been in the last you know 25, 30 years of a decreasing rate environment, and we're not in that. There's not much room for rates to go any lower. So it's just a really interesting thing to to conceptualize, I think, when it when we start talking about risk and long-term planning. And I think this whole pandemic has probably given a lot of people pause to go, hmm, maybe, maybe I don't understand the risk of short-term and long-term of what I have in my portfolio. Right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, bonds have a different risk. Like, you know, it's um, stocks tend to have short-term risk and bonds tend to have long-term risk. Like the risk of bonds tends to be permanent losses. Hmm. Yeah, you know, which is interesting. Permanent losses of inflation over many years, or if they do have a loss, you don't you don't get it back because because you know the they, they, because it doesn't pay. But uh, you know, incidentally, if you look at the major countries around the world over the last hundred years, there are a few countries that have had a more than ninety nine percent loss in their government bonds over the last hundred years, and that's because they had a period of hyperinflation and it wiped out the bonds, mm-hmm. and that's true in. Uh, Germany and Italy and Japan and Brazil. So I think five or six of the biggest 16 industrialized countries in the world have actually lost. If you would have bought their government bonds 100 years ago, you'd still only you'd be down 99% in your purchasing tower power today, 100 years later. And I think people really struggle to understand how inflation impacts their money because. You technically, you look at the account and the money's still there, but it's just it's not worth anything anymore. So that's the it's the conceptualization of seeing what loss means in that sense. Yeah, I think like a lot of younger people today were never around when we had high inflation. And right. So we had high inflation in the 70s and 80s. You know, if inflation was, you know, 10, 12, 13% a year. So we were used to seeing things go, go way up. And... Uh, so when you when you live through that environment, then you see what happens. But even even when rates are low, you know, with two or three percent inflation over a thirty year retirement, your cost of living is going to double or triple over during your retirement. And so it's you know you're, you're trying to fund this whole thing, but but you need this rapidly rising income. And bonds are actually not good for providing a rising income. They're, they're good for, for providing a flat income. Return-free risk. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, we could keep going and we could get more technical because this is absolutely fascinating and I'm, I'm really enjoying it. But we should probably wrap up. There's lots for our listeners to get their heads around in this episode. Mm-hmm. Chrissy, do you want to uh, any parting topics that we want to cover quickly before we let it go? No, I, I think just to wrap it up, we just go through the main points where um, we're discussing how bonds and heavy allocation to Canada are a drag on your portfolio and uh, the way to 
have a great long-term plan is to think long-term. <laughs> That's the number one thing. If you think long-term, it helps to put everything in perspective and it really guides you in the right direction. I think I'd just add to that as well, that you can go to a fee-for-service planner like Ed and get and sit down and get a very well-written, comprehensive plan and still do things yourself. It's having that plan that makes the difference. So it's been great uh, chatting with you, Ed. We really appreciate all your insights. So uh, let us know. I mean, anything you want to finish off with and also let our listeners know where they can find your wisdom, your unconventional wisdom, I should say. <laughs> Yeah, my blog is under my name. It's edremple.com, E-D-R-E-M-P-E-L.com. It's also unconventionalwisdom.ca, but not, not .com. .com is some scam site, but it's... <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I, couldn't get that, I couldn't get that URL. So, um, but, you know, the final thought is, you know, when you, when you think long-term, smart investing is clear. And, you know, we're in, a, we're in a down period now. This is a buying opportunity. And you know, anyone who's thinking short-term may debate with me, but when you think long-term, it's really obvious that's a buying opportunity. Yeah, for sure. Definitely is. Well, uh, I will continue to lock myself indoors for the next uh, little while, and I wish all our listeners, I uh, hope everybody's safe and well out there, and just absolute pleasure talking with you, Ed. Uh, I may be consulting with you in the future if I can <laughs> convince myself. <laughs> 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 it's hard to let go of the DIY investing, <laughs> but it's worth it. I know, but I'm, I'm just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, at least, the, like I said, this discussion and the prep for this is, it actually made me look a little deeper and realize that although I'm fairly well on track, I could definitely make some adjustments for longer term planning. So it's been, I really appreciate that. Thank you, Ed. Yeah, it's been fun talking with you guys. I'll be glad to be on here on your podcast anytime. Oh, we'd love to. <laughs> lots and lots more we want to talk about. Okay, thanks a lot, Ed. Nice chatting with you. All right, talk to you later. 